to another episode of the Sci-Fi Roundtable podcast. I'm your host, Shane Thomas, and filling in for John Cronshaw is Damon Ballard. Today we've got Bill McCormick, Mr. Bill McSci-Fi, and we're going to be discussing uh, GMO people today. You make GMO people? Where do I sign up? <laughs> and, you know, a scary thought is that I met with some scientists when I was doing my research. Uh, I, I took them out to dinner, and I discovered three things. First of all, theoretical geneticists will only drink top-shelf foods and eat the best steaks available. My bar tab for that evening was amazing. <laughs> uh, I, I had to sign a nine-page non-disclosure agreement just to get to sit down at the table with these people. I can't even tell you if they were male or female. Really a thorough NDA. But uh, one of the things I discovered is that the idea of making a slave race of chimera beings is already on the table. These people are thinking about it. And because I'd done enough research prior to it, we sat down and I was able to say, you know, six extra chromosomes, if you could do this, glue six extra chromosomes into the human DNA, and you could do it. And that was on the side research. And I presented my work to them, and they were all like, yeah, that's it. That's, that's exactly what you need, six. And then, and then they start telling me how you can do it and what you're looking at. And I'm like, this is the most terrifying dinner I have ever been at in my life. <laughs> Essentially, you're saying that CRISPR is uh, old hat to these people. CRISPR is a Tonka toy. CRISPR is the Legos of the universe to these people. It was amazingly terrifying. I I don't know if you've ever deep dumpster dived into the human genome because, you know, I know a lot of people like to do that for a Saturday afternoon. But basically it comes out to this. Due to our ancestry, due to our evolutionary ancestry, we do have reptilian DNA in us. We do have uh, the DNA for talons. We do have the DNA for claws, for fangs. Those have been, they have never been edited out. Circuit freaks throughout the years, you know, have developed you know, bodies full of hair like a, you know, like a bear or developed fangs. So you used, I can take you to a New York bar where there are people who have fangs, you know, and it's like their big thing. They're enjoying it. We have a lot of stuff that can develop in us naturally. Oh, yeah. And with some, with some minor prodding, you could, with just our DNA now, uh, uh, like Croc from the uh, Batman universe, you could make a human being like that that could be reptilian with claws and, you know, razor-sharp fangs, oh, yeah. still have the intelligence of a human being. And that's without doing any editing. Yeah, that's like chicken mm-hmm. teeth. You know, I've seen those experiments, and they're really, really basic-level experiments. Um, but absolutely, it, genetics, a lot of people don't understand, is that if it doesn't have a detriment to the organism, even if it's not using the particular sequences, it's not going to be edited out. That's exactly the point. And when you sit there and tally up what we have available, I mean, I, I, I deal with it in the Brittle Writers by referencing it. I wasn't writing my master's thesis here. I was trying to write a story and scare people and entertain people. But one of the things I dealt with and when I was talking with these scientists, one of the things we talked about was like, for example, you, you, you've seen the uh, the superhero characters with wings that they could fly. You know, ooh, they got fly, they got wings. But to actually do that, You'd have to thin out their bone density, thin out their body mass, give them much more, a lot more tensile strength to their skin, and so on. And if you add the six chromosomes to the human DNA sequence, you can bring back an avian sequence. You could alter it to do that and to create a flight path of a succubus with bat-like wings or with a a feathered creature. You you know, uh, I use the columbine pigeons in my book, thus the pigeon overlords. But uh, 
Columbine pigeons, by the way, I picked them because their heads bob and they're really cute when they walk down the street and they're kind of <laughs> very interesting. That's very obscure and like two people will get the joke, but who cares? But putting something together, putting together a creature like that, we don't really have the technology here today to cause everything to bind correctly and not just create some freak that would, you know, implode upon itself shortly after birth. But we do have the basic understanding of how to make it work now. We know we're missing stuff, but we, we've gotten to the point where we know what we're missing, and that's kind of freaky and frightening. I think one exciting avenue that could be a, a near-future exploration is you know, teasing out things like Neanderthal DNA and reestablishing the Neanderthal species or uh, what's the, the Denisovans. That might be a closer term before we go into some Dr. Moreau type of stuff, you know, just altering back because we're all, uh, you know, two or three percent other hominin races anyhow. So they might kind of in some point in the near future start off by trying to take us backward and see what it would be like to have other hominins still existing today. And and from there, who, who knows? The sky's the limit. As Damien uh, pointed out a little bit ago, with chicken teeth, one of the reasons they have that is they've been reverse engineering chickens back to their uh, Neanderthal stage or the you know Paleolithic stage in evolution. A group of German scientists did that with dogs not that long ago, where they created a race of dogs that were the original wolves that humans would have met before they turned into little things with bunny ears that you see on the TV now. You know, before they were cute and funny, they were these really massive creatures. And when you look at a wolf today, you're not really looking at what those humans originally befriended the wolves. They would be much closer to the Game of Thrones dire wolves. They were these massive, muscular beasts, and they were incredibly powerful. Wow. And they ran across something interesting. And I thought this was interesting. When they did the full reverse engineering, and they've successfully done this, by the way, they breed these things. And if you've got, like, five figures laying around that you don't want to throw in a Maserati, you can throw it and get one of these dogs. But here's the thing. When they reverse engineer them, they split. Some of the dogs are very docile, very quiet. They're just so cute. They're just big, giant puppies. They're just lovely, big, big puppies. The other half of them are freaking killers. They will tear your throat out just as soon as look at you. And they have yet to be able to breed one that contains both attributes. They don't know why, and I'm sure that's something that's not bothering them at all because they use the killers for security and stuff. Uh, in remote areas, and they use the big fluffy ones for watching children and taking care of kids. Otherwise, there's only like a hundred of them around the world. You get uh, a smart German Shepherd or a uh, smart Lab or something, and they got the smarts of probably five, six-year-old kid. It's been tested. They're about a three-year-old. Three? Okay. I've I've known some pretty damn smart dogs. <laughs> I've known but, some very smart three-year-olds. <laughs> <laughs> right, but I'm sure that, I'm sure those beasts rate a little bit higher on that scale than the creatures when they're, when they're taken back to their original state they're much more cunning i wouldn't say they're much more intellectual or they're much more they have a larger intellect but they're much more cunning they have natural instincts that can provide them survival techniques that are not really available in modern dogs but it's weird to uh, science is reverse reverse engineering dogs reverse engineering chickens like shane said we might start reverse engineering people to see what kind of proto human we develop i'm sure that'll go just spectacularly well. I have no worries whatsoever. <laughs> I'm sure somebody's playing around with the uplift concept as well, if you're familiar with that series. Uh, David Brin is kind of a pseudo friend of mine. We're not BFFs or anything, but uh, I wrote an article years ago called The Great UFO Conspiracy, and 
he liked it and shared it with his friends at NASA and gave me a review that I was able to put on it. So I wrote the great UFO conspiracy redux because I just reprinted the same thing, but I threw David Brin's review on top of it. Basically, it was how, I don't know if you're familiar with the history of UFOs, but we didn't really have UFOs the way we think of them now with the giant disc floating in the air. Until about 1935, Germany, when uh, Hitler had to explain why they were making such amazing technological advances, he couldn't just say, well, we're illegally stealing technology from the Russians and the Americans and the English. So he said, oh, we discovered this UFO, and it was a big secret, except it really wasn't a good secret because it got out, and it got out specifically through American and Russian ambassadors to scare the living crap out of them. And then by 1939, Americans and Russians also had their own crash UFOs, and this imaginary weird UFO race was on. But, uh, yeah, if you go back, it's actually all because Neville Chamberlain refused to take a look at how they were doing things. Had he simply looked at how they were building the technology, he would have known that, hey, that's the English technology. We had it back at our place. Or, hey, that's the Russian technology. We know it because they're, at that time they were our allies. But he never got off his dead butt to go look at any of this stuff. And Hitler got away with one of the greatest scams ever. And you look at the UFO, they're always, it's always the same. It's a 50-foot disc. Well, if you do the math on it, and unfortunately I have, you've got about an 11, 7 to 11% livable space in there. Everything else has got to be rotated out, either to house engines or to house discs to do the centrifugal force. And even recently, some people have built a flying disc that actually works that can do all the different things that are, you know, UFO is supposed to do. But you're still looking at 7 to 11% livable space. So in a 50-foot disc, that means the maximum height of a creature would be like four feet. You can't put a lot of them in there. It's not much of an invasion force. It would be, at best, a scouting ship. And considering these things allegedly crashed in Roswell, Russia, Germany, China, uh, allegedly there's one in northern Pakistan, these are the worst pilots in the universe. They literally can go billions of miles across the galaxy, but they can't not get a planet. I mean, they're horrible. <laughs> Anyway, I wrote about it, and Bryn liked it, and he gave me a really nice review, and he shared it with a bunch of scientists, which led to me having funny conversations with people who just assumed that I was a quantum physicist who knew you know, uh, interstellar mathematics and may have been multilingual, and obviously I spoke Chinese, and uh, that's led to some hysterical emails in my inbox. But, uh, <laughs> here we are. <laughs> oh, bad. Well, back to the uh, subject here. So for your work specifically, how do they go about affecting these changes? Are we talking uh, retroviral insertions, nanotech, a uh, combination of things? Nanotech is definitely involved. Basically what we did was we came up, we created this character named Edward Q. Rota, uh, a Brazilian scientist, Afro-Brazilian scientist who had a summer home in Africa and his winter home in Brazil. And he hosts really nice parties, but he's also a brilliant geneticist. And so he creates a race of beings that since they have six extra chromosomes, they're not human, so he, he can just sell them. And the fact that he's selling sapient beings is kind of the underlying theme of our book, my book, anyway. That, that's a whole separate ethical problem. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, my, I, you haven't read The Brittle Rider. Shane has. But it starts out with the death of every man, woman, and child on the planet. That's the preamble. Before you get to Chapter 1, everybody's dead. So I solved the epic problem by just killing everybody. <laughs> Which, for our listeners, that was last week's recording. Uh, I read that to our dear listeners. So by the time this is on the air, just go back and listen, and you'll uh, figure out how we're all doomed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, we'll get to it. I'll get to what the geneticists told me in the real world. But what I what we did was we added the six chromosomes to the human DNA, and then manipulated. 
the different parts by manipulating where there would be wings, where there would be talons, so on and so forth. And what Rota did was add in something called a bio bomb, which I'd actually read about. There is a theoretical thing that you can do here where you insert into the human anatomy or in, into a human bloodstream. Uh, it's a ticking time bomb. And after 10 years, it's basically a version of curare that explodes throughout your system, shutting down all your organs, and then you're dead. It was something that was looked at by the CIA, by the uh, by MI5 or MI6, excuse me. Um, well, pretty much every intelligence agency in the world. Uh, they could never stabilize it. Well, in my, you know, the fact that it almost existed was close enough for me, and I used it as the basis of Brittle Riders, that it would be injected into these creatures created by Rhoda, and then after 10 years, they would die. The problem that he ran into is that while it worked in the testing stage, by the time the creature had lived 10 years, its immune system had dealt with all these other things that we all deal with, viruses day by day, uh, running into flus, infections, just, you know, the day-to-day stuff you see. Well, their immune systems had become very strong, and when the biobomb went off, it just became like a 10-year flu, and they shook it off. You know, they had a runny nose and fever for a couple of days, and they walked it off. That was uh, a really interesting plot point, and I don't even think it came up in, in the reading of the Brittle Riders until no. end of book two or book three. That's probably one of the most plausible parts of, of the science that you put into there, because one thing our immune systems actually do is to take what's useful in a virus and to adopt it and make it a part of us after we've fended off the virus. But, that, I mean, that's the whole theory behind vaccines. And curare, although it's an exotic way of killing people, is actually a mutagen that we run into variants of it all the time in a body that had been exposed to it, especially a body that was enhanced, you know, because it's only going to live for 10 years, so you put all the enhancements you can into it. So a body that, that is enhanced is the ones I posit in the Brutal Riders, when it finally runs into the curare, it's basically like, yeah, you got nothing here, buddy. Go on, move on. <laughs> Only one that might be sick at the time might have been taken down by it at that point, I would think. Right. Well, you either have to be an ill creature. We call them, I call them brands in the book because they're just different brands of human beings. They're, they're genopods is their trademark name. But, uh, yeah, I call them brands and brands with the different trademarks because they're not people. And I I wanted to make them commercial products, and I wanted to show how they were inhuman, you know, dehumanized by the marketing department, dehumanized by humans. And there are some scenes in the book where that becomes very obvious, and, you know, the dehumanization of them. On the one hand, that made it easier for humans to use them as slaves and for humans to use them how they wish, but it also allowed them to no longer view humans as their relatives, which they should have been first cousins, but they weren't. You know, when you dehumanize somebody at some point, they no longer think of you as part of them either. You know, it goes both ways. We're all the human race, and we've done it to one another time and again throughout history. This culture is not the same type of human as that culture. Therefore, we can enslave them, subjugate them to our laws, or even kill them for their land if necessary. So, of course, if you're going to put bird feathers on somebody, they're much more different than just somebody with, you know, a different religion or skin color than you. Damien brought up uh, David Brin earlier. And actually, that's something we're talking about because one of the pre-reviewers of the writers sent in one of his actually my favorite review. He said, uh, if David Brin came off a three-day tequila vendor and dropped acid, he would have written the Brittle Riders. And David, I know for a fact, it's like, whereas David's very upbeat about things, he thinks that if we start uplifting creatures, yeah, there's going to be bumps in the road. But basically, when we bring porpoises to, to sentience, when we bring chimpanzees to sentience, gorillas, and so on and so forth, 
when we do this, they're all going to become part of the larger galactic community. I'm not so optimistic. And I understand why he's optimistic. He's an optimistic person at heart. He, he, he looks for the positives and things. I mean, he wrote the postman and he still came out with some good things on it. It's just the way he is. He's wired to be a positive human being. I'm not. <laughs> I'm not that kind of writer. I, I, you're not going to get a lot of rainbows and unicorns out of me. Although I, I try and find some happy things. And even in the Brittle Riders, for all the death, destruction, and just horrible things that happen, there is kind of a happy ending at the end. But you you got to get there. <laughs> it's going to take you a while to get there. Um, <laughs> there, were, there were a few kicks and, in the and, teeth along the way. <laughs> yeah, a couple. And, and one of the things you brought up, like, like the 10-year fluke, I reference it in book one, but very marginally. Uh, it's just, it's a toss-off. And the reason is because I didn't want to dumpster dive into the science of it and put the brakes on the story. But by the middle of book two, I'd open things up enough where I could come back and look at that and have it looked at by the characters so it became a part of the story. And uh, how there's characters that become, you start to become aware of them in book two and later in book three, that they are literally autistic and they're designed to be autistic because they, autistic people have very sensitive, they're very sensitive to sounds and lights and different things, which if you could control that would mean that you could see further, hear more, smell more. You would be in the ultimate spy. You would be amazing at being a spy. And these creatures are just that. So I had to like go through how you could control autism and how you could use nanites to do it. They'd have to tune it down, <clears throat> and, you know, put their shoes on and eat breakfast and get out the door to do their spy work in the first place. Absolutely. But to, to different elements of it, you know, when you start getting into how they, created autistics and how they did different things like that. Then I was able to dump her in a little bit deeper and show people how the 10-year flu worked. It's funny, in uh, the companion book that I'm two-thirds done writing now called The Gopri of the Mist, it's an extension of the Brittle Riders universe, but it doesn't really involve the Brittle Riders because because of reasons. If you haven't read the book, if you've read the book, you're like, oh, that's why. If you haven't read the book, I don't want to give it away. Go read the book. You'll have fun. And I need the money, so go read the book. But, um, <laughs> yeah, he's still paying that bill from all the geneticists and their top-shelf liquor. <laughs> oh, dear God. Speaking of someone who has worked with a variety of people in the entertainment industry, I mean, it's on my bio, biography. I worked with James Brown as his business manager for nine years. So I met a lot of people in the entertainment industry. And as such, I met a lot of people who live, shall we say, a hedonistic lifestyle. And I went out to spend time with those people. And... They got nothing on geneticists, theoretical geneticists, man. <laughs> These guys were just amazing. I mean, bottle service for dinner kind of stuff. I was like, it's impressive. Wow. And not champagne. None of that wimpy stuff that the little kids drink. No, no, no. We want top shelf whiskey, top shelf vodka, bottles of it at a time. That's terrifying. <laughs> and these are the people who are building... Genetic manipulations. So just well, put but those go back to their labs and check out how that new liver is developing. <laughs> <laughs> it could come back to the moral and ethical questions because if they're that far out on the bleeding edge, they're really tap dancing on those lines. The thing of it is, is that you say they're tap dancing on the lines. I don't see the lines. And I mean, I've been able to see some of the stuff that's going on. I actually saw a little bit of their research. They were able to show me some video. There is no line to these people. There is no, we're crossing this line to get to the next level. They don't see it that way. They just see we're going in that direction. And as one of the geneticists told me that night, as we were sitting there, she goes, when humans create a race of 
chimeric slaves. And she said, and they will because they are stupid. <laughs> then they deserve what happens to them because they all will die. And she'd read my book. I added in their research later. But the story that I had up to that point, they were able to read and had done so. And they're like, yeah, that's it. Everyone's going to die. You got it. You nanites. You need more nanites. You haven't thought about how to, how to bind <laughs> genetic stuff. But, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm getting like pro tips from people sitting at the table with me while I'm getting annihilated. And, um, and that's hard to do because I can sit and drink a fifth of vodka, look you in the eye and go drive your car. And I was off the edge with these people. Just where their thinking is and what their thinking is. They literally don't care what the results are. They just want to see if they can do it. And that to me is terrifying. Well, science, man, for science. Yeah. <laughs> well, let me propose this to you. It's, uh, it's something I came up with a while ago when I was trying to explain to somebody why cloning by itself doesn't scare me. Now, let me explain. I look at knowledge as a ladder and there are rungs on that ladder. And as you're climbing up that rung, one of these is, you know, cloning Dolly the sheep. Another rung is cloning a full human being. And then the next rung above that is cloning just part of a human being, a working heart or something like that. Now, you have to pass over that level of knowledge, but you don't necessarily have to use that rung as you're climbing that ladder. You have to know how to clone the entire human before you can necessarily clone just the individual pieces. But that doesn't necessarily mean you have to do that. Now, it sounds like these geneticists that you've worked with are like, yeah, we're going to step on that rung as we go by anyways. Well, I can answer this because I know this for a fact. This is not I, I, not a hypothesis, not hyperbole. It's the other way around. They already know how to clone human organs. They just haven't figured out how to mass produce it yet. But they have not got to cloning a human being. So the, the order is reversed on your ladder. But they're actually learning the first one, how to clone all the individual parts to make them work before they start cloning a human being because they want to make sure that all the individual parts can work in a clone situation. But, yeah, they're at that point now. I mean, it's, it's not available to the public. It's not available to anyone. But the uh, basics, I, I imagine, are some rich guy living on an island with his evil army. He could probably get it done. But uh, <laughs> for the rest of us, it's... There's three things I want to bring up in this conversation, and, and this touches on one of my favorites. H.G. Wells' book, The Island of Dr. Moreau, is mm -hmm. the first time I was aware of genetically modifying human beings. Uh, did you guys like that book or that movie? I love the book. I, I didn't see the movie until... I saw the original movie, and I think it's from the 50s. Um, which I loved, but I, I was much more enamored with the book. And then I've seen a couple of remakes and eh, I don't know. I saw the, the, book, the, the 90s Val Kilmer movie. I haven't read the book, but I saw the, the Val Kilmer uh, would have been a remake because they had the earlier version. I was a kid at the time and I loved it. It was very interesting. I'm older than you are. So I read the book when I was still in grade school. I think I was in fifth or sixth grade when I stumbled across it in the library and went, whoa. And it's still, in, mentally to me, it still has that impact. I'm a fan of Moreau. Um, it's one of the things that got me uh, thinking about the whole genetics and, you know, how would you go about it? And independent of uh, this, I came up with the idea uh, that I include in my work is uh, a gen tank, genetic modification tank, essentially. Stick somebody in there, slap them in the tank, 
you can program it. It works with uh, retroviral and nanites. So it's got a nanite control suite as part of the computer control system. And you can make live modifications to a adult human and control the possible cancers and negative side effects that can come out of that, which allows you to regrow a limb on a person who has lost one or give them wings. That was the idea behind that. It sounds like these people uh, that you're working with are headed that direction. <laughs> I mean, what they showed me was obviously what they were allowed to show me. And that was after I'm I signed. I'm sure that's a teeny fraction of what. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, I was not taken to the lab. I did not get a tour. There wasn't the cool lab assistant with the button-down shirt that forgot to wear a bra. There was none of that stuff that I always get in movies. I wanted the movies. <laughs> Uh, it was before I met my girlfriend, so it would have been okay. But uh, the island of Dr. Moreau obviously involved human experiments with animals from an animal hybrid. But one of the interesting things, one of the old folkloric things, and one of the things that I started bringing into the Brittle Riders was the uh, story of the golem, the uh, Jewish story of bringing an inanimate object to life to do human bidding and then to remove life from it. In other words, bring it to life, it does, what you, it does the job you need to do, and then you kill it doesn't get any thank yous or anything. Its sole purpose in life is to be a slave for a very limited part point in time. When I brought religion into the Brutal Riders, and I do, uh, I did not bring the Jewish religion into it because they have a whole thing against slavery. They have a whole thing against enslavement. They have a whole thing against being marked. So there was no way to comfortably make that religion happy with slavery. But I could do that with others in various forms, and I did. I uh, found that very cool. interesting, by the way. Uh, the, the religions aspect? Yeah, and I, I liked how they had this uh, Rhoda became part of all of their religions just about, but then mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of the actual current modern religions are kind of worked in either at face value or in some varying degree. Very interesting. Think about it for a second. These creatures were raised by humans. They were listed by humans. Now, in the book, I've got it like around 50 years of nothing but human enslavement, and they're supposed to be every 10 years dying, and they're not. So they're Rodent industry is kicking out hundreds of thousands of these creatures. Their only source of knowledge is what they're getting from their human masters. That wouldn't just disappear when they killed their human masters. You know, you take with you what you've learned and what you know, and then you. Uh, it's interesting. I mean, I had an imam read my uh, book, book because of book two especially, and I wanted to make sure that you know I was not going to be pilloried for what I wrote. And he, he loved it. He had there were a couple of minor changes he requested for the way. Creatures would interact, even if they were no longer human, they, what they are and are not allowed to do under Islam. So I had to change some scenes to take that into account. But there were really a sentence or two here or there. It wasn't like I was way off base. But, you know, that's something else, too. It's like and I, a lot of science fiction authors these days don't include religion. They don't include beliefs or faiths, or they come up with some sort of mythical, almost satirical faith system where, you know, you're, you're worshiping the three-eyed uh, lemming that happens to be a statue over at Walmart or whatever. And I didn't want to shuffle it off like that. I, I was like, all these beings would have known was what they would learn from their human masters, even though they wanted to kill all their human masters, and they did do that. It's such a big part of the human experience that to ignore spiritual traditions and religion altogether in a whole fantasy world is silly. Actually, over at The Hub, uh, A.M. Steiner recently wrote a pretty interesting religion 
world building article for us there. Uh, so I want to give that. I a love little... that article, by the way. Absolutely. Oh, thanks. In the next installment of uh, my book about Stone Age hominins, they're going to get the first book kind of tackled them becoming conscious and basically, you know, aware of the self and, and their involvement mm-hmm. in society instead of just acting through instinct. In the second one, they're starting to see a culture. So I'm looking forward to using that article in order to help me create a believable religion that would guide characters and actually have, uh, you know, you did a great job in, in Brittle Writers. I'm thinking of uh, the temporary writer, Ben. Ben Al-Salim. I know very little of Islam, but you could almost tell how he was going to react and act in certain situations because of his spiritual grounding. So I want to be sure for a whole make-believe religion that really encapsulate all that. And that was uh, Steiner really put something nice together there. And his his book series is really fun, too. After reading it, I, I put it on my checklist to check out. And right now, I've unfortunately got three contracts in front of me that I need I need to fulfill so I can do things like pay rent. Darn those priorities. Yeah. You know, I, I tried giving them Internet cred. You know, hey, I got a thousand likes. Will you put that on my gas bill? They just don't. <laughs> yeah, that, that that whole adulting thing gets in the way of so much, doesn't it? Yeah. Especially when all I do is write. So that's you know, it's not like I I don't go work in anymore. I get up in the morning and I pop my little palms off the keyboard until words appear. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> all I do. So <laughs> I I do the day job thing, and I kind of like it in a way because my job involves travel. I convert books to a a synthetic e-reader, and during travel. I get to listen to books all day long and, and, uh, you know, do four or five book reviews a month. And that way I've got this whole, on top of being a writer, I've got my fostering, my fanboy love in, in the science fantasy hub. So that's, it's like, Oh, I don't know if I would quit my day job. It's imagine all that reading time I would lose. <laughs> yeah, at some point writing for money is kind of fun. Oh yeah, for it's, sure. It's daunting, but. It's fun. But uh, one, Ben Al-Salam is actually a great character. Because of his beliefs, he actually, when he, when he finally interacts with the Brutal Riders, they had two choices. They could either just leave this guy in the dust because he had to stop every day and pray five times a day, or they could change their way of interacting with this alien being and its alien beliefs and try and incorporate it and work out some sort of compromise that was respectful to everyone involved. And their initial reaction to this guy is why it's here. And as they, as the book goes on and as things go on, they obviously, they incorporate more of him into their lives and he incorporates them into his, um, his conversation with his imam back at the, you know, back at the mosque where he grew up, where he lived. That's a kind of a longer conversation that I don't really do in the Brittle Riders. I don't give long sections to different beings, but I wanted to give him that one because him explaining what he'd seen, the alien things he'd seen in the imam, you can tell it's almost like, yeah, and? <laughs> and he's looking for the out there where he can either dismiss this thing completely or they're all going to be part, all going to be the same. And he doesn't get that. He never gets the clean closure he wants. Instead, he gets, as he says, you know, he asked Allah a question and Allah's answer was maybe. You know, you don't always get a yes or a no. You get eh, think about it. It's a maybe. And I wanted that kind of gray area to be available to them, you know, to the characters in there. 
And so it, that took a little longer to write, but I'm, I'm very glad I wrote it. It was one of the scenes that the imam actually wrote. He goes, nope, not changing, not changing a syllable of this. You got that one right. So. It's good to see that when you're addressing something that does exist in our world, Islam, for example, that you're touching it with the respect that it deserves to the adherents, getting the imam to look over the work and give you the suggestion so you're not kicking somebody in the teeth, as it were, over their beliefs is very, very cool. I had a priest I used to go drinking with all the time. So I've known a lot of religious people in my life, and I met this imam because uh, we ended up becoming friends, and they invited me to an event at their mosque one time, and I hung out and ended up talking with the imam, and we just ended up becoming friends. And so I've known these guys pre-2009. We've met. <laughs> you know, we've been to barbecues together. We've been to uh, fairs together. We've been, you know, to an amusement park together. And a lot of who they are, fueled who Ben would be. And there were parts of their personalities that I really, really, really wanted in the book because of the way these guys view their religion and the way they use their religion to interact with others. And there is in, in Islam, there's this thing called zakat, and it's the fifth pillar of Islam. And it's literally, the word translates to charity, but that doesn't quite do with justice. It is to do for others as they cannot do for themselves, to always be there to make yourself available to them. It's a very deep, profound part of Islam and being able to get that across, especially in books two and three, and to be able to get those, that across without beating the reader over the head with a, you know, this is the history of Islam. <laughs> Read this. I, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to make it a natural, organic thing. And so I made it part of the character's interaction with each other's characters, with the different characters in the book writers. And the same thing with the Christian faith. I use a very stripped down version of Christianity, kind of a neo-Protestant version where there's no iconography. There's just, they very much believe in God. They very much believe that Jesus was, you know, the son of God and that humans missed the boat completely when it came to interpreting his word and his message. Oh. The fact that I have that message being reiterated by a six foot tall cockroach is just me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have a six foot tall cockroach and I have a walking, talking goldfish that likes to ride in carriages. And that's, a, that's the representative of Buddhism. And it's a mutant cow that's a representative of Islam. And yes, there's satire in this book, a lot of it. But uh, I want to view things through a bent lens. And I did that. Uh, you know, and anyone that has the privilege of being Facebook friends with Bill, you are going to be exposed to some of the best posts and humanity observations there are out there. It is a delight to scroll through my feed and find out who you bumped into on the bus, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> I like people. I know it's funny. It's like David Brenn is one of those guys who's not a big people person, but then he writes these beautifully uplifting stories again and again and again. Me, I love people. I help out at the library. I do things. I'm always out. You know, I'm very much in the world with people. Then I sit down to a type, type of story, and I'm like, and everybody dies. Chapter one. <laughs> <You> know? <laughs> I know that you solved the ethical problem by murdering everybody, if you will. <laughs> it's a good solution. Um, it definitely solves that particular problem. The way I solve it is... Uh, by the people that undergo it being willing participants. But then I play into a little bit of that racist, speciesist type of thing that, uh, ooh, what are you? Why would you go and do that to yourself? In the Brutal Writers, I do deal with uh, that. And even after all the humans are gone, there's still that 
level of, oh, well, the others, the group of people that fall under Lord Sudaman are considered evil and insectoids, and, you know, they are the other. The creatures from the East, they don't even know about the Islamic people who live on the Southeast Coast. They just know the ones who went to the North, and those are like the others, because it's from the Midwestern point of view. The people who live in uh, Gochi, as I call it, with remnants of what's left of Chicago, which is a much more sprawling thing, right, in, in the book, but there's a lot of separatism in there and where each should stay to themselves. You know, basically the whole underlying theory of nationalism. This is my group and only my group. And this is all I want. That's an underlying theme throughout all of the brittle riders. And it's how these beings have to overcome that, what they have to come to grips with and things they have to face partly together, but partly individually as themselves. Like how am I going to deal with this other being who is very different from me? But if I want to survive, I need their help. And they need mine. There's a lot of that. There's as the different group, group tribes come together and they, you know, start to overcome things and find out in one point that there's a tribe that they all thought was dead. And it's like, no, I've just been living in the basement of a church, literally. <laughs> <laughs> like an entire species has been living in the basements of this pseudo church. Uh, nobody knew they were there. Just one guy figured it out. And uh, he kept their secret because they didn't want to come out. All right, you're not out. Fine. You know, we can live with it. Dealing with that and dealing with how you react to those who you might perceive as the other or the different. It's not the whole theme of the Brittle Riders. It's not the, but it's an underlying theme that confuses at some point, you know, how these characters are going to deal with each other, how these characters are going to interact with each other and what they may or may not be able to accomplish together. There's a scene in the first book, Shane's, Shane's read them all, but there's a scene in the first book. It's halfway towards the end of the book. You know, it's in the back third, I guess you'd put it, where one of the characters talks the succubi and various succubuses into flying in a formation that requires them to interact bodily with each other. They have to use their wings and everything to bodily become this like flying corkscrew. And they hate this idea because it's, they're used to flying. It's their wings, their thing. And their leader takes a look at it and says, no, give this a shot. He's got us this far. Let's take that leap of faith and see if it'll get us to the next step. And what they create, of course, is a wind turbine that flies at 150 miles an hour, and they can fire on a specific target by using five succubi in a winding bend. Don't even ask about the math behind that. I actually had to look how to build your own jet engine to come up with it. With this <laughs> creature. They basically become an organic jet engine. And at the end of it, when they realize how successful they are and how quickly they can do some amazing damage with the same weapons they started out with, but now they're much more focused and much, you know, they're just much more terrifying. The coordination you know, really yeah. makes it up a notch. When they realize exactly what they can accomplish by doing things in this new and exciting way that they wanted nothing to do with, when they realize that, they basically run back to the guy who came up with the idea. It's like, okay, let's have sex. You were amazing. we got to do this. This was great. And he's like, no, no. I don't need to go that far. You know, you're my pals, but... <laughs> I draw the line on interspecies relationships. Just call me a prude. Let's have a high five instead. Yeah, yeah. Give me a hoof, baby. Give me a hoof. But it's a little scenes like that in there where they come to grips with new ways of doing something they thought they knew how to do. Suddenly presented with a point of view they never considered and it never existed in their life. Because I spent a lot of time in the 90s watching sci-fi movies, uh, I have to mention Gattaca while we're talking mm-hmm. about genetically modified people, especially because this is actually happening to some level nowadays. Because We can look at embryos and, and determine which ones have diseases or could be prone to, you know, they have the, if you have a hereditary disease, they can 
look at all your embryos and determine which ones. They'll fertilize eggs in test tubes and determine which ones carry the genes that could be diseased. And, uh, you know, then you remove those. So therefore your children will never have this hereditary condition that your family has suffered with. This is already happening to people. Mm -hmm. In a lot of ways, we already are genetically modifying our species with science and technology. And Gattaca really explored that 20 years ago. And it came to where people that were just, you know, love childs or, or not test tube babies, they were like the outsider freaks that couldn't get good jobs and everything. Even though they looked like everyone else, they were still, oh, that guy could have a heart condition. He'll never amount to anything beyond just a, doing a, like a janitor's job. Because, you know, what if he drops dead at 60? That's what a waste of life, you know? Yeah, no. And I didn't want to get into that. And I didn't into the writers. Um, there was, a, even when I was writing it, there were things that were happening that are, you know, out now. A custom eye color, you know, designer babies. Um, yeah, right. Yeah. Not that far, far off. And there's an interesting theory. And I read it. It's uh, by a Chinese scientist named Dodak Chin. But basically it said that if you do this, if you create nothing but designer babies, they don't have polio. Smallpox is edited out. Everything's edited out. What you're going to end up with is a race of beings that are going to be susceptible to a new disease that other humans can get rid of from their current immune system that will just wipe them out. And I touch on that in my short story, Warbless, which is the funniest story about fatal diseases you'll ever read. But I kind of got into it where they, everybody got rid of all these other diseases. And they, what they found out was that there's a new disease in town. It, it, nature hates a vacuum. And so you're not, a, you're never going to accomplish what you think you're going to accomplish. Right. It's like using too much antibiotics is you just clear the environment for that one, uh, you know, antibiotic resistant staph infection mm -hmm. would have to compete for uh, geography, territory, and food with all these weaker diseases, and therefore its breeding would be checked. But when all those weaker diseases are eliminated, and this thing just basically gets an armpit washing and keeps on going, mm -hmm. then it can breed in these great numbers, and it's this devastating disease that overtakes everything instead of just being one of the milling masses that gets washed off with regular hand soap down the you know, gym drain or hospital drain. Absolutely. We know at this point that we way overused antibiotics. Although we still need to use them, the courses of antibiotics are shorter with more upfront punch because you want to deal with the infection but not keep hitting it and the body for that very reason because then you open up that window. Well, yeah. we've also come to realize with antibiotics that there's tons of things it kills that are actually beneficial to you, and you mess up your digestion big time. You have to reseed all your intestinal gut flora after you've had antibiotics, unless you just never want to poop right again. Like the antibacterial soap. You use that every day. You're literally wiping out the bacteria to protect your skin, and you leave yourself open to developing lesions and stuff like that. Yeah, you can't be using that stuff all the time. Every once in a while, like at the, you know, I walked my kids to the playground this afternoon, and uh, the little one used the porta potty. You better believe we're going to use the antibacterial. Oh yeah, absolutely. Wall-mounted yeah. thing. <laughs> but it's. <laughs> I, I would use the uh, industrial strength hose and just strip the kid naked, put him on the lawn, zap him with the hose, put him clothes back on, and take him home. Yeah. <laughs> That's just me though. <laughs> right. I think I've done that with myself. That no, 
that's a different story. Never mind. <laughs> this wasn't after dinner, was it? <laughs> it was. It was rib night. <laughs> I do want to bring up the topic of genetically modified food for just a minute. I don't know how this could apply to us, but we genetically modified food to be pesticide resistant and then put a heck of a lot more pesticide on our food. But if pesticide kills bugs and we eat a lot of pesticide, is it doing us any good? Where you get into differences is genetically modified food has existed since the Aztecs. That's where we get bananas from. That's where we get the various figs from. That's, where That's we why get... we have corn that we eat on the cob. Selective breeding, right, yeah. And those selective breedings were also designed to be resistant to various forms of life that would, you know, in fact, bull weevils and what have you. Uh, cotton is one that developed along those lines. So they would have a, a firmer husk. You use the firmer husk. It keeps away the cotton weevils and you have a healthier crop. There isn't a whole lot there. Where, where we get into trouble with genetically modified foods is when we start getting into the transgenic stuff. Uh, for example, there's a breed of tomato that's made with spider webs that's designed to keep the skin on the husk really firm, and it allows it to grow larger so they can sell it. It's not designed to be eaten directly by a person because it's not that great, but it's perfect for saucing and using a different vocabulary. You're literally ingesting a different animal species into the human food without the human knowing about it. And then you start getting into some really weird stuff. And I, trust me, I spent a night with some theoretical geneticists who were like, let me explain what we're already doing, what's on the market today. Oh, yeah, we did, and we've been eating it all along. I have a gluten sensitivity. Specifically, I cannot eat American wheat, but I can eat einhorn, the ancient wheat that humans have been ingesting for thousands of years. We'll order it on the Internet from Europe and buy it, and I'll eat it. And I eat rye and I eat barley. It's not a gluten thing. It's American genetically modified wheat that I cannot have. You're not alone there. American genetically modified wheat is built to make, we have these restrictions in line that they don't have in Europe and they don't have in Asia. So we have restrictions on how stuff, how long it needs to last on a shelf is one of the things we have in America they don't have around the world. So stuff gets designed to have a shelf life as opposed to be healthier or be better for you or just be good right. food. If you spray something on that kills things and you eat that, is it really going to be that good for you? <laughs> I'm friends with several factory farmers, and the amount of care that goes into removing the Roundup or removing any of the pesticides from stuff, there are pesticides that make it through. Uh, then you get into the whole organic farming thing where you're allowed to use arsenic in the fields. You kind of need to make sure you wash your veggies before you eat those. <laughs> where you run into trouble is the wheats and corns and stuff like that, where you're not washing those items when you get Sure, them. and some, some of that stuff actually gets sprayed after harvest in order to right. for shelf stability. That's where you end up in trouble. I, I did an entire thing on a radio show that I do. I did an entire thing about green beans in it. People were just stunned to discover how green beans get processed and the washing process and everything else. You know, there's like all these steps and we could spend, I spent 25 minutes on a radio show talking about green beans and people were fascinated by it. But basically what it comes down to is if you eat the organic green beans, they're the healthiest, but you have to double wash them. The next best ones are the canned green beans, but you have to rinse them and wash them once in cold water. Always wash in cold water, never wash in hot because hot water opens the pores and then all the stuff from the outside gets into the root. Wow. Yep. Blah, 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 all this stuff. But I, I, you know, we don't have the time to go into it. But 
yeah, I've dealt with this and I've dealt with it. I do a weekly radio show. I've dealt with it on that. And it's amazing to me how healthy we can be eating this stuff with just some basic precautions. Simple rule of thumb. Anytime you buy a vegetable, rinse it in cold water. If you're looking for a wheat or any sort of product like that, get the foreign. Don't get the American and try not to eat processed anything. And you're all right. <laughs> You'll be fine. Where can our listeners find you? You can find me at dcballard.com. Uh, that's uh, my site. It's got a link to my existing work that's published, uh, Chaos Fountain, as well as links to my blog where I do my ongoing log entry series. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that. but uh, I caught one. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. It, it's just me kind of exploring that wider, insanely uh, huge universe that I seem to play in for everything. <laughs> and uh, it's already touched on, and this hasn't been really discussed, but the small mini-universe that uh, the main character of Log Entries came across and watched being born is actually the universe that Homecoming exists in. Awesome. Cool. <laughs> a tale within yeah. a tale. Now, Bill, it's BillMixSciFi.com, right? Yeah, I have everything up there. I've got links to all my books, short stories, comic books, graphic novels, you name it. i got some free stuff up there uh, that you can read so you can find out whether or not you hate me before you start spending your money. <laughs> uh, I want to thank the nice Amazon tech support department for naming me Bill's Sci-Fi because for a brief shining moment, they screwed up all my books. And a sports writer from New Jersey named Bill McCormick was releasing my books. And I, on the other hand, was suddenly an expert on tennis, golf, and country music. Oh, boy. <laughs> but yeah. this guy straightened it all out. And um, I forget his name, but he was a tech support guy from Amazon. I got him on the phone. He fixed everything. And he, gave, he, he was going, oh, this goes to Bill McCountry. This goes to Bill Mix religion. This goes to Bill Mix sports. This goes to Bill Mix sci-fi. And I went, oh, yeah, that's mine. And I had the web domain in five days and a website. Awesome. Don't forget, if, if you're out there writing, come and join us. We're the Sci-Fi Roundtable on Facebook. And if you just love to read writers, join us at Reading the Roundtable of Science Fiction and Fantasy, also on Facebook. All this is in the show notes. You can find me at the Science Fantasy Hub. That's sciencefantasyhub.com. And uh, check out the show notes for how to catch up on John Cronshaw. He'll be back with us on the next episode. Uh, Bill, Damon, thanks for joining us. This was a lot of fun, guys. I cannot speak the uh, wonders of the uh, Sci-Fi Roundtable enough. It's been uh, one of the best things I came across as I was just starting out uh, and looking to get published to begin with. We're all fans. Uh, we're about 2,000 strong now. So uh, if you're out there writing, uh, come join us and talk. We uh, do a lot of shop talk and, and some fun, of course. <laughs> all right. Hey, this has been great, guys. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.